Okay, so I'm going to pick up um, and just cover a couple more topics in neuron uh, and neuro neurons and neurobiology before we move into the brain. Um, there's this uh, type of cell called a glial cell, um, or uh, glia in uh, plural. And essentially what the glial cells are going to be doing for neurons is providing a lot of different support functions. And so, for example, one type of glial cells uh, enable the uh, growth and expansion of neurons. Um, those happen to be the radial glia. You don't need to know all these different types necessarily. Um, but uh, one of the most important functions of the glial cells is producing myelin. And we said that myelin is important because it allows for much faster transfer of information. So on an axon that's very long, where the, in, the, where the signal has to move a lot more quickly through the axon, uh, having that myelin sheath is real important. Um, and they also are involved with um, taking away and um, uh, breaking down waste products that are produced by the neurons, right? Because as a product of metabolism, as a product of doing their general functions, neurons are going to produce waste products like other cells do. And so they need to be uh, taken care of. So microglia and astrocytes are busy doing that. Ogliodendrocytes, I like that name, ogliodendrocytes. Maybe it's oleodendrocytes, I don't know. Schwann cells are pretty cool. There is, uh, there is some research that I just, I was looking up not too long ago where they used, um, they used uh, rat fat cells to grow um, cells that are like Schwann cells. And they can grow these um, cells that are like Schwann cells. And if, if you put um, a, piece of, uh, uh, a piece of a neuron in this Schwann cell material, it, the neuron will start to like regenerate and start to like grow new branches and all kinds of stuff. So it's pretty cool. Um, these, uh, there's a ton of this stuff. In fact, in your brain, um, nine out of 10 cells in your brain, nine out of 10 out of the 100 billion or so cells in your brain are uh, uh, glial cells. And so only about 10% of your brain are actual neurons. Um, but notice that they take up half of the volume of your brain, not 90% of the volume of your brain. So what does that tell you about them? Really tiny, really, really small. Yeah but there's a whole lot of them. So I wonder if this is maybe where that kind of myth that you use only use 10% of your brain comes from, because only 10% is real neuron cells. I don't know. That would be funny. Um, so basically, if you're going to send signals inside your body, from one part of your body to another, you've got two ways to do it. Neurons, uh, neurotransmitters, and uh, hormones. So we already talked about neurotransmitters and how they work. 
So let's, uh, I'll just talk briefly about some of the hormones that your body uses and what they're all about. And when we talk about the brain, we'll talk about hormone production in the brain too. So hormones are generally produced, uh, produced by and used by a system in your body called the endocrine system, right? And the endocrine system is all about making sure that your body is running properly and responding to the environment properly. Um, hormones are produced by uh, glands, which are a special type of tissue. For example, the um, pituitary gland in your brain produces hormones, right? They call that the master gland. It produces a lot of reproductive hormones. And when those uh, hormones are produced by the glands, they wind up being distributed in your body, not by electrical impulses like neurotransmitters, but rather just blood moving around your body. So as a consequence, um, the, uh, the hormone action comes on more slowly and it kind of eases up more slowly. It's a more gradual process than neurotransmission where you can get real fast uh, action. Yeah. Um, are there certain types of glands that you get straight Not that I know of. I'm not yeah, right. Yeah. So the pituitary gland, for example, is going to produce some hormones that also go to another type of gland, the um, adrenal glands, right? Um, and so this stuff's all linked together. Yeah. Um, So uh, what are some of the uh, endocrine glands? Well, I already talked about the pituitary. Uh, it sits kind of at the base of your brain. Like if you were to sort of put your thumb here and go back about half an inch or so, um, if you were doing a lobotomy. No, don't do that. Uh, if you put, yeah, if you go back about a half inch, uh, three quarters of an inch, you'll find your pituitary gland. It's probably, it's actually a little further down than that. Um, one of the uh, endo one of the hormones that's going to produce is called um, oxytocin, and um, oxytocin is the hormone that's produced when women go into labor, and it produces uterine contractions. There's a synthetic version of oxytocin that's produced for inducing labor. I don't remember what it's called. Does anybody know? Oh, it's just I thought it had a special name. Okay. Um, and so, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't want to find out. Well, actually, I do want to find out, but um, uh, oxytocin is also released um, during orgasm. Well, you know, um, it's always good to have lots of experiences in life, I always say. Um, yeah, and uh, so, and so you might find, for example, during orgasm, uh, women sometimes experience uterine contractions along with the um, uh, orgasmic effect and the vaginal contractions that will occur. Um, and it also occurs for men uh, during orgasm. And it also has recently been studied 
um, in relationship to it, the, the, the feelings of trust and um, uh, the feelings of intimacy and closeness uh, seem to be related to oxytocin because if we uh, actually give people oxytocin and measure their sense of trust, their sense of intimacy, their sense of closeness, they tend to report higher levels of uh, trust. So it may have some real evolutionary advantage that um, you know the the uh, process of sexual congress and uh, orgasm may actually induce this sort of bringing people together, feeling closer, and getting these um, uh, couples to stick around together because that's important for survival, probably. Yeah, a couple questions here. Hold on. Yeah, hold on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what they're that's what they're also thinking about too. That it has bonding effects with uh, childbirth. Yeah. I don't know uh, if they've looked at um, whether uh, the drug ecstasy promotes production of oxytocin or not. Uh, follicle stimulating hormone. Uh, women have follicles in your ovaries, right? These are the um, eggs that are forming in your ovaries, and when they uh, mature and reach the surface of the ovary, they are follicles, and FSH is released to stimulate the release of that follicle from the um, uh, from the ovum, uh, the ovum from the uh, ovary, and it, they're also involved in sperm production too. That's all linked together. So remember, with men and women, the reproductive uh, organs are all emanating from the same tissue. It just gets differentiated during sexual differentiation in, in, uh, in uterine development. The pituitary gland, as I said, is also sending messages to the adrenal glands, which sit up here on top of your kidneys back here. And um, they're responsible mostly for these, the production of these real excitatory neurotransmitters, um, epinephrine and norepinephrine. And you associate these with adrenaline, right? You talk about adrenaline. You get all you get all nervous, excited. You get hopped up on adrenaline. You almost get in a car crash, and you have this rush of adrenaline, right? Um, and what they're also going to do, in addition to getting epinephrine and norepinephrine going, they're also going to uh, stimulate the production of these stress hormones, cortisol and corticosterone, and what these are responsible for is shifting your metabolism so that you can create a lot of energy really fast. Um, so uh, your blood sugar goes up and you start turning fats and proteins into sugars so that you can have a lot of energy to respond to whatever threat it is that you're detecting uh, in this process. So uh, pituitary gland, adrenal glands, those are the main uh, glands to be concerned with, I think. Okay. So uh, at this point, we're going to turn the page and go into uh, brain structure and function. I brought a brain model with me today, and um, I'll pass it around in a second here. So brain structure and function. Um, 
how do we know what the brain looks like? Well, one way we can find out how the brain is structured is to cut open your head and pull out your brain and cut it up and dissect it and see what all the parts look like and that kind of thing. But that's um, really pretty destructive and it's very hard to do that with people who actually want to live afterwards. So um, we are fortunate to have developed some techniques to be able to take pictures of brains and structure of brains, but also the function of brains, what brains are actually doing when we do tasks. So um, in terms of structure, there are two ways you can do this. One called a, a CT, computerized tomography. Uh, it's also called a CAT scan, uh, computerized axial tomography. Um, and because when it actually images your body or your whatever it's imaging, it images it in real thin slices and it kind of slices up your body into pieces and you can look at each slice and you can move through the body by look going from slice to slice to slice. Um, so that's a CT scan. MRI, um, magnetic resonance imaging, is more recently developed and has some advantages over the CT scan. For one thing, CT scans use uh, x-rays to uh, do their work of imaging what's inside your body. And x-rays are damaging to your tissues. They're damaging to your DNA. They cause mutations in the DNA. And that's not good, especially if those mutations occur in what are called germ cells, uh, basically your reproductive uh, organs. So uh, reducing the number of CT scans you have in your lifetime is a good idea. MRIs uh, don't use X-ray radiation. Uh, they use um, magnetic, uh, they use uh, electromagnetic wavelengths and electromagnetic radiation to, um, to actually image what's inside your body. And so it doesn't have the same destructive kind of potential that the uh, CT scans do. But if you want to look at function, you've got two choices. Um, the PET scan, which is an older version of uh, functional imaging. Um, and what the PET scan did was it detected sugar use in your brain. So the idea was that when parts of your brain become active, their metabolism goes up and they have to use more sugar, more glucose, which is um, one of the two main uh, one of the two main things that brains use for energy, brain, that brain cells use for energy. So it detects uh, glucose use so it can see what parts of the brain are, ha are working at any one given time. The newer version, uh, the newer te imaging technology for functionality is called the functional MRI, fMRI. And um, again, uh, it doesn't use radiation and it has some other advantages over the PET scan. The functional MRI, instead of detecting glucose, it detects oxygen use, which is essentially the same thing. Those parts of the brain that are more active are going to require more oxygen to function. So. Um, the PET scan is a little bit slower at responding than the functional MRI. So if I wanted to test, for example, your ability to add numbers together, um, 
if I were to give you, you know, one plus one equals two, I'd have to take, you know, a pretty quick snapshot of what's going on in your brain to know what part of the brain might be associated with addition. But um, with a PET scan, it's going to be a lot slower to respond. So we typically, bless you, so we typically can't do these kinds of in complex uh, functional tasks with the PET scans. The fMRI is the current gold standard for uh, imaging functionality. Um, but they're very expensive and it's uh, they're not that common and it's hard to get time on them so um, they're they're difficult to use for research but uh, but that's what we like to use what was I going to tell you about this stuff oh, okay oh yeah question why are they why are they so expensive just the technology is still new there's patents that have to be, you know, people have to be paid for their patents and all that. Uh, plus, you know, they use relatively expensive components, I think. Um, you know, this whole thing with function, you know, imaging function is kind of funny. I like to use the analogy of um, if I were to walk up to your house tonight and stand outside your house and you had the shades drawn, right, like I'm stalking you or something. Uh, and I'm looking, I'm looking to see, like, um, try to see where you're moving around in your house, right? Like, maybe try to figure out what you're doing, you know? Uh, you know, why aren't you studying near psychology, you know? <laughs> trying to figure out, are you watching TV instead of studying psychology? Or um, So what I might do is I might squawk up to your house, and if I see a light go on, I think, well, there's probably something going on in that room, right? You wouldn't turn on the light unless you needed to do something in there, probably. So I might see the light go on and I might see some sort of, you know, maybe I smell food cooking or something. And so I say, huh, well, I bet that's where the kitchen is in the house, right? So I'm starting to map out your house, right? Um, this is getting weird, isn't it? Um, so, uh, so I know where your kitchen is and then I see the light go off in there and I don't smell the food cooking anymore, but I see a light go on in another room in the house and I go, oh, huh. Well, that's probably what, like the dining room, right? Like where you're going to eat your dinner. Yeah. And so now I got the little map that says where the dining room is. And I see the light go off in the dining room. And then I see the light go back on in the kitchen. And I go, aha. Uh -huh. So I bet what happened was uh, they cooked something in the kitchen. They went and ate it in the dining room. And now they're probably going back to the kitchen, and um, I don't smell food cooking anymore, so I bet they're cleaning up in the kitchen, right? And then maybe I see a light go on in another room, and I kind of see some flickering lights, and I think, oh, that looks like a TV going in there. So I bet that's where the TV is, so I map that out, right? And that's kind of what functional imaging is like at this point. Um, it's relatively crude and relatively gross um, in terms of its ability to discern exactly what's going on. I can see, I can see some patterns, and I can draw some inferences from those patterns. But it's not—it's still not like I can walk up to you and look inside and look at what the thoughts are, or look at what the consciousness is, right? I can't. I don't know exactly, you know, what kind of pans you're using to cook or. Um, are you happy or are you sad while you're cooking or, um, you know, what kinds of dishes you're using, you know, whether you use a napkin or you wipe your um, mouth on your sleeve, um, what TV show you're watching. I just see some lights going on, right? So um, there's a lot that can't be 
discerned from this stuff. So, uh, But we have a lot more information than we did have, and it helps us add converging evidence to knowledge of how brains work. So that's the advantage of it. Now you'll notice that there's one sort of imaging uh, technology that's missing here. What's that? Not exactly. Um, X-rays, yeah. When we think of imaging, we think of like taking pictures of things, yeah. So yeah, the X-rays. Um, why is the X-ray missing? What can't the X-ray, what does the X-ray show you and not show you? Yeah, it's really good at detecting dense material from not so dense material. And it can't discern very well the soft tissue. So it's not good for really detecting uh, uh, brain structure or whatever. So you might look at an x-ray. Oh, wait, no. Uh, don't. That's Homer. Um, yeah, see, that doesn't show very, you know, that actually, that's actually an MRI up there. And this is what the x-ray would look like. But let's forget about Homer for now. No more of that nonsense. You know, I get I get on the Internet. But you might want to do a CAT scan. Uh, no, no, no. That's really stupid, too. Um, so this is what a CAT scanner looks like, right? No, that's not what a CAT scanner looks like. What we really want to see is what does the image from a CAT scan look like? And that's probably more something like this. That's what it would look like if you actually scanned a cat, but that's not really what we want to see. All right, enough of that nonsense. Um, so that's one, uh, you know, that's why I like to leave out the A because, you know, I just get too many of these images. You know, I had fun with Google this afternoon. So, so this is a CT scan. All right, back to reality. So um, as you can tell, you can see a lot more structure than you could with an x-ray that really can't differentiate that soft tissue. Um, so you see the cortex here, the cerebral cortex, corpus callosum. Uh, there's a ventricle here. Uh, the um, thalamus is going to be in here. The cerebellum, the brainstem, the uh, pons and the medulla. And then there's some, uh, you know, part of the nasal cavity here. The tongue is down here. So, um, so you get a pretty good idea of what that looks like. But um, the CAT scan resolution isn't as good as the resolution will be on an MRI typically. Plus, you don't have all that incredible amount of radiation if you run MRIs rather than CAT scans. So that's the main advantage of the MRI over the CAT scan. Um, still, you can make out all of the details of the structure of the brain, even some of the more fine details in the cerebellum, for example. The fine details of the musculature of the tongue, right? Um, PET scan, this is what a PET scan looks like. This is a normal active brain. And the gradations of color essentially indicate how much uh, glucose is being used in these areas. So here there's a lot of glucose being used. This is the um, occipital lobe in the back of your brain. So it's likely that there's some, maybe some sort of visual task going on here. I'm not sure. Um, and the bluer colors are where there's less uh, glucose being used. And these are actually probably 
uh, ventricles um, here. And it you know, goes to green and then yellow and then orange and red. Um, but again, um, you'll notice that the resolution is not all that great. This is an older technology. The newer technology, the functional MRI, combines being able to look at structure. See, we have that same kind of structural view that we did with the regular MRI, but we can also add in function too. So we can actually see with much greater uh, resolution what's going on in the brain. In this case, uh, there's a lot of activity back here in the occipital lobe, so this person's probably doing some kind of a visual task. The nice thing about the functional MRI is you can lie somebody back in the machine. Whew, get dizzy. Um, don't do that. You can lie somebody back in the machine and put a video, you know, a video, a computer monitor in front of them and have them watch some scene or engage in some problem-solving task and you can watch exactly what activity patterns are happening in their brain as they do these tasks. So um, it gives you a real good sense of how the activity patterns change as they go through the process of engaging in these different behaviors. So it is a lot better at kind of capturing that, um, that momentary behavioral change that happens. So as I said, if you ever want to get a uh, research project funded, put a, some sort of imaging study in there, preferably a functional MRI, because um, they make pretty pictures that people like to look at and say, oh, look, I know what's happening in the brain. Aren't I smart? Well, no, not really. You just know where there's some activity happening, right? Uh, questions on that uh, neuroimaging stuff? or? Yeah. Um, it it's relatively real time. Yeah, you know it can capture relatively quick um, frames. Yeah, of activity. Yeah. I don't know. I think I don't know how old the fMRI technology is, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's um, you know it's not that uh, new. Uh, I think it's been around for a while. Um, it's just that. Uh, the longer it's around, the cheaper the technology gets and the more likely that we'll be able to use it. The problem with the fMRIs is um, there's a relatively small number of them uh, and they're typically only at real large research universities and they typically tend to get used a lot by the neuroscience, the biology people rather than the psychology people. And psychologists, if they want to get time on a fMRI, uh, typically have to wait until late at night or in the middle of the night. So it's not like I'm going to be able to have a subject come in at 2 in the morning and do some kind of cognitive task and get any really useful data. So um, it's, it, uh, it, isn't, it isn't used that much for psychology uh, at this point. Uh, it's mostly in neuroscience, um, neurobiology. Yeah. We don't like the biology people. You know, first of all, if you go to graduate school for biology, you know, when you go to graduate school, you'll get a stipend, uh, which means they'll basically pay you to do your research and maybe do some teaching. And if you, uh, if you get a stipend in biology, it's like, you know, 25,000, 30,000, uh, you know, just for being a student, really. Uh, but if you do a PhD in psychology, you might get, 12, 15,000, so 
Um, not that I'm bitter. Damn biologists. They get all the grant money and all the, do all their fancy MRI studies. Yeah, all right. Um, let me take a little. Hmm? Fancy, yeah, fancy MRI. That's right. FMRI is fancy, fancy pants MRI biology people get all their MRI time and we don't. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's about five of. You want to take a break until um, about five after, and then we'll pick up and finish up with the brain. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that. I think I think you might be surprised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. There's still a lot of unenlightened people. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna finish up with um, brain anatomy mostly, and some function too, because it's all tied together. Um, so I brought along a model brain. We used to have, uh, until this year, we had an actual uh, human brain in uh, solution, preservative solution. And I used to bring that in. That was really, really worthwhile. Um, students got a lot out of that. Not just, you know, for fun, but actually um, it means a lot more when you see it. Uh, but uh, it turns out that um, like we have we would have to register it as a hazardous material and um, like the, the preservative is really incredibly toxic and like if you like breathe it and you have asthma you'd fall over and die and um, and then yeah and then it turns out that the um, that brains contain these uh, proteins called uh, prions I think and they are uh, infectious. Um, and so, um, you know, I've been, you know, the last couple of semesters, the last few terms, I've been like, you know, have students come up and, you know, we put gloves on and stuff, you know, and they'd handle the brains and stuff. And I had no idea. But anyway, we had to, we uh, decided to destroy the brain to sacrifice it. So, um, so this is essentially, uh, you know, the brain in cross section. And um, so there's two hemispheres, each the same. Now the two hemispheres are only, the only hemispheric deal is the cortex itself, okay? So what you see here is, notice how this is not cross-section cut. These are actually folds, or these are called gyri, or gyrus, and these, uh, these uh, wrinkles are called the sulcus. There are various sulcuses. And um, so the actual hemisphere, this whole hemisphere is one unit, and it never touches the other hemisphere. This right hemisphere doesn't ever come in contact with the left hemisphere of the cerebrum. The only connection between the two is through this structure. And you remember what that's called? Cor 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 corpus callosum, yeah. The body of fibers, probably. Um, this is made up all of neur neurons. 
there's a relatively small amount of glial cells in here. It's almost all nerve fibers going uh, back and forth between the two hemispheres because it's got to keep communicating constantly. Um, otherwise, the you know the right side of your brain doesn't know what the left side of your brain is doing. You know, it's got to be in coordination. This is severed, the um, cerebellum part back here. And the cerebellum hangs off, hangs, sort of hangs off of the brain stem, and it's part of that brain stem. And then the uh, brain stem, the medulla, the pons up here, and the spinal cord would be down here. Um, so uh, here's... Uh, so we're basically going to talk about the anatomical structures, but also some of the functions. What you see uh, inside here and actually even inside, yeah, inside here and here, uh, these are called ventricles. And ventricles are where cerebrospinal fluid is produced and where it circulates inside your brain. So um, cerebrospinal fluid is uh, a fluid that uh, provides... Um, some support functions for the brain. It does a lot of um, uh, waste product removal. Uh, it also does some nutrient, it contains some nutrients, but mostly what it does is it cushions the brain from the skull itself, right? So it's a, it's a um, sort of layer of fluid. Your brain kind of sits in this um, vat of cerebral spinal fluid, and it's fairly viscous. It's um, you know, it's got some viscosity to it. But um, what it essentially does is it, it keeps your brain from, like, smashing into the side of your skull when you do this, right? Or, you know, when, even when you fall down and hit your head in a minor way. Of course, if you have a major head trauma, then the brain, there's not enough cerebral spinal fluid to keep your brain from smashing into the side of your skull. And in that case, uh, you get a concussion or something like that. So the cerebral spinal fluid circulates throughout the um, throughout your skull, around your brain, and inside the ventricles, and it also circulates inside your spinal cord. So it provides um, uh, support for the spinal cord also. Um, if this malfunctions, um, that is, if the, for example, if the um, uh, circulation gets blocked, what can happen is it can keep producing more and more of the cerebrospinal fluid and it'll cause uh, pressure. And that pressure can damage the, uh, the cortex. So um, that has to be kept and maintained at the right level. If you get too much of this fluid building up, then you have to actually drill a hole and let it out. It's the only way to really take care of it. Uh, anybody of you who have had a, what's called a spinal tap um, is a procedure where they take a sample of the cerebrospinal fluid to check for certain infections and things like that. So I hope you never have to have that. It's, and it's a great movie. It is a great movie. Yes, indeed. Um, okay, so we're going to talk first about... Oh, so this is on this model. These would be the ventricles here. And... You can actually see that they, um, if you look at this part, it actually goes back inside and kind of inside the back of the uh, cortex. I'll pass these around so you'll get to see them. 
So we're going to talk uh, next about the brain stem. So the brain stem is um, really uh, whoops, sort of the most primitive uh, and uh, original parts of the brain. It develops before the cortex does. And um, I'll start this one over here. This one I'll start over here. It develops first before the cortex, and it'll actually develop um, after. Uh, it'll develop fully uh, before the cortex forms. And in all other animals, this is also the first part to form. And in a lot of animals, it's the largest part of their brain, uh, in addition to the limbic system, which is up on top here. In humans, we're somewhat different than most other mammals in that the uh, cortex is actually the largest part of your brain. So um, uh, that's sort of what one of the things that makes us special. Um, oh, let me tell you something. I gave you a couple of worksheets. I forgot to mention these before. Uh, worksheet two is a diagram that has the major structures of the brain. The first page of Worksheet 2 has um, a line, and underneath the line is the function of that part. And so a way to use this worksheet is to fill in the name, so you can associate the name of the structure with the function, and also be able to associate the geography of it. And on the other side of the sheet is the name of the structure, with a space below that for you to, to, to write in the function. So you'll be able to go both ways between names and functions. The second worksheet was uh, the Wagner Preference Inventory. And that's a little questionnaire that will um, help you determine your preferences in terms of hemispheric uh, specialization, which we'll talk about in a few minutes here. But I just want to tell you a little bit about those before we go on. So uh, the medulla connects directly to the spinal cord. And since all of your sort of regulatory functions are, um, you know, your, your uh, nerves and all of the um, connections to your body are going through the spinal cord, if you sever the medulla, usually it results in really bad outcomes, like you die. Um, so you want to protect that at all costs. Wear your motorcycle helmets and football helmets and stuff. Um, these fibers uh, that come up through here are mostly your sensory fibers. The uh, afferent nerves are coming up through here, these bluish colored ones. This area in here is known as the reticular formation. And um, as it says, it filters incoming stimuli from your sense organs. Uh, and it also controls arousal. So in the morning when your hormones start going and the sun's coming up and your circadian rhythm is telling you it's time to wake up, this part of your brain will start to become more active and the more active it becomes, the more awake you are. Uh, and then up here on top is the thalamus, but that's actually considered part of the forebrain. This brainstem is also called the hindbrain, but there's something weird about that, right? Like, if, you, uh, if we look back at this image here, 
this is not behind the rest of the brain. It's actually below the rest of the brain. So why wouldn't it be the underbrain or something like that? Any ideas? A hint is that humans are different from most other mammals. Yeah. Essentially, for most mammals, here's what happens. This whole thing rotates like this, and the cerebral cortex uh, is smaller. And so, um, yeah, because they stand, they walk around like this, eat grass and stuff, right? So, um, so yeah, so hindbrain, really, when you think about mammals, think of it in terms of being behind the brain rather than underneath it. Okay, so uh, the forebrain is where, uh, first of all, a lot of emotional stuff is going to happen. But secondly, and most importantly, where all the intellectual sort of reasoning action happens, all the what we call executive functions. So we've got the brainstem down here. And um, up at the top of the brainstem is the thalamus. And the thalamus, as I said, uh, the thalamus is like a, it, it receives and processes and roots out to the cortex a lot of your sensory stimulation. So in addition to the um, reticular formation, uh, the thalamus is doing some sensory processing and sending that information out to where it needs to go in the cortex. Uh, the limbic system is really important in terms of what kinds of behaviors. When I say limbic system, you should say E-motion. Yeah, good. Um, really um, highly connected with emotional activity. Also memory. Memory because the hippocampus is in here. The hippocampus is like a U-shaped structure. Uh, on this diagram, it shows it better. It kind of loops around the uh, thalamus, underneath and around the thalamus. So it's got two stems to the uh, hippocampus. And um, that's associated with memory, particularly the integration of memories. And we'll talk about memory integration when we go through memory. But just think of it as the ways that you connect memories and make sense of memories, the associations you build between memories. Uh, sitting up on the very front of the hippocampus is the amygdala, or the amygdala, amygdalae. Uh, they are responsible uh, or implicated in extreme emotions, particularly in fear and rage and sort of um, intense emotions. So um, what's interesting is that that is so closely connected to the hippocampus. And one of the things we'll talk about in memory is something called flashbulb memories. Flashbulb memories are memories for very, uh, very, very powerful, very um, vivid memories for emotionally uh, loaded events in our lives. Um, you know, your most powerful memories and your most intense memories will be associated with very powerful emotions. Uh, you know, most of us probably remember exactly what we were doing and 
um, what was happening when we found out about the uh, attacks on the World Trade Center right, in New York City. Um, very vivid, very powerful kinds of memories. So, um, so that so emotion and memory are connected here. Then, in addition, you've got the hypothalamus up here, which uh, sits in front of the thalamus and below the thalamus, and this is going to be associated with bodily regulation. So, making sure that you keep your body in balance. So, it's going to be producing hormones which work to keep your body in equilibrium, keep your body in homeostasis, hypothalamus. Um, that is directly connected to the pituitary gland. Remember, and that, again, one of those glands that's responsible for hormone production, mostly for reproductive functions, okay? Um, really heavily tied to reproduction. So reproduction, uh, you know, homeostasis, bodily regulation. And then sitting out here in front of the hypothalamus and connected to it is, uh, it's not labeled here, but it's uh, the olfactory bulb. And the olfactory bulb is where the, um, uh, your uh, smell receptors uh, are going to come down through the nasal uh, cavity here and the roof of the nasal cavity, and you're going to be able to detect smells with the olfactory bulb. Well, guess what? The olfactory bulb is really closely tied in with all of these regulatory, um, reproductive, and memory stuff, right? And emotional stuff. So oftentimes smells will be potent um, cues for memories to come back. Um, smell is an important part of reproduction. You know, when you say people have chemistry, you know what? There's something to that. Um, pheromones are chemicals that uh, mammals produce. I'm not sure if reptiles do too or not. Uh, I know that mammals produce pheromones when they're in a state of reproductive readiness, for example, or when they're in a state of alarm or danger, right? So being able to detect that stuff and have it tied into reproduction, memory, learning, responding to the environment, regulation, that's real uh, valuable. So the geography here is, um, is important just to recognize that all this stuff is really closely tied together and it's going to be affecting each other um, in terms of function. They're not isolated components. Uh, women uh, generally have um, more, uh, have a better sense of smell and better dis differentiation and discernment of smells, particularly uh, when they're at the peak of their fertility. Um, uh, and what happens then is we can run experiments and we see, for example, that uh, women, if you give them a set of t-shirts, that one of those t-shirts was worn by their uh, uh, their sexual partner and the others were worn by similar people, um, they'll be able to reliably pick out the one uh, worn by their sexual partner. Like that's really intensely tied into reproduction. Um, so uh, smell, cerebral cortex stuff. So. Everything else up above here, and as I said, the um, 
the corpus callosum would be in here somewhere. Everything else up above the corpus callosum is considered the cerebral cortex or the cerebrum. And um, this is going to be split up into different uh, parts, different lobes. Back here, I didn't talk about it, is the cerebellum. And cerebellum is connected with what kinds of things? Do you remember? Motor skills, particularly like coordination of motor movement, uh, stuff like that. Tiger Woods, yeah. Uh, it was an interesting show on last night. I don't know if anybody was watching. T oh, it was in the middle of the night. I was up again in the middle of the night. Um, it was a show called uh, Nova, which is a science show on uh, PBS. And they had an episode on a family that had four or five members of the family that walked on uh, all fours um, permanently. Uh, they did as from when they were children, and they... Um, they had apparently had some sort of like balance issues and they did some MRIs and scans on their brains and it turned out that the hippocampus was incredibly small. It was like that big. And so it appears to be some biological abnormality that was giving them trouble. Not, not the hippocampus. Did I say the hippocampus? I meant the uh, cerebellum is really small, yeah. So the lobes, um, when we talk about the, cere the cerebrum and the cerebral cortex, we talk about it in general as what we call association areas. And that's mostly because, uh, again, just like in the limbic system, these are not isolated pieces of your cerebrum. These are connected. They all talk to each other. Um, there's connections between all these parts. Thank you. There are some specializations of the parts, but uh, they're all sort of connected and um, use information from each other to, um, to do the functions you need to do. So the frontal lobe up front here is going to be made up in the very front here of a part called the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex uh, has been associated with uh, judgment, decision-making, impulse control, motivated behaviors. And um, this part of the brain actually doesn't develop fully until you're in your mid-20s, for example. So uh, teenagers, guess what? Problems with impulse control, problems with making good judgments, that kind of thing. Um, not because, well, partly because they haven't had experience with life, but also partly because of biological development. They may not be biologically developed to, uh, to do those things. Uh, then um, part of the frontal lobe, say up in here somewhere, is an area called um, Broca's area. And Broca's area uh, is associated with language, but what particular part of language? speech or language production, I like to say, uh, because we actually see, for example, if we have damage in Broca's area, people who are deaf uh, signing individuals who can't uh, speak have problems producing uh, signs. So it's language production really in its most fundamental sense rather than something with the speech organs themselves. Um, the temporal lobe back here 
and it actually extends into the parietal lobe also, is an area called Wernicke's area. And Wernicke's area is also associated with speech, but what part? Comprehension, being able to understand. So if you have a stroke back here in Wernicke's area, you may not be able to understand what other people are saying to you, but you'll be able to um, talk to other people because Broca's will still be active. Okay. Now, uh, note that Broca's and Wernicke's area are only in the left hemisphere, not in the right hemisphere. That's one of the sort of specializations of the left hemisphere is it is specialized for language. Um, now, um, the parietal lobe here, notice that it is right next to the occipital lobe. The occipital lobe receives visual input from your eyes. So what happens is um, your retina and your eyes send information through the optic nerve and the optic nerve is going to travel through and wind up in the occipital lobe. It's going to go through the thalamus and stuff, but it's going to wind up in the occipital lobe. And vision processing occurs in the occipital lobe. It changes those electrical signals from your retina to information that you're, then your parietal lobe can use to make sense of what you're seeing, to perceive, to begin to understand what's being seen. But also the parietal lobe is going to be connected with spatial skills and being able to sort of make a mental map of your environment, uh, stuff like that. The temporal lobe is also um, active when you are listening. So uh, audi auditory processing. The auditory nerves go from your uh, inner ear to the uh, temporal lobe, the auditory cortex in the temporal lobe. There's two specialized areas of the cortex here, the motor cortex and the sensory cortex. This is a sulcus. A sulcus is um, one of those folds in your brain. And one that consistently occurs in the same place is this sulcus. And it's called the central sulcus. And that roughly divides the frontal lobe and parietal lobe. The very front, the very uh, back part of the frontal lobe in front of the central sulcus is the motor cortex. So when you want to move part of your body, we see activity in the motor cortex. And in your book it, and this uh, model, it kind of maps out where on that uh, motor cortex particular parts of your, body's, uh, parts of your body are uh, stimulated. So if we stimulate one of these areas with an electrode, for example, you know, we'll see your finger twitch or your arm twitch or your foot or whatever. So that's the motor cortex in front of the central sulcus uh, in the frontal lobe. Then in back of the central sulcus is the sensory cortex. So when you're receiving sensory information from your body, it's going up and stimulating parts of the um, sensory cortex. And so on these models, it has the same thing. And in your book, it has the same thing where it maps out what parts of your body are associated with what uh, parts of the sensory cortex. Uh, 
So again, if you have a stroke, for example, in your left motor cortex where, you know, it's a, it, it controls your arm movement, then you're going to have problems with moving your right arm. Your left arm is going to work fine. Why? Because the right side of the the right side of the brain controls the left side of the body. Left side of the brain controls the right side of your body. Okay. So it crosses over. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some ideas about that. Um, the one of the ideas is that the left hemisphere develops sooner in babies uh, as a function of language. And we think that that may be associated with, with more people being right-handed. But uh, I don't know all the data on it. Yeah. Yeah. But definitely, you know, if you're right with your right hand, those signals are coming from your left hemisphere. And you're right with your left hand, those signals are coming from your right hemisphere. Yeah. Yeah. S-U-L-C-U-S. S-U-L-C-U-S. Sulcus. Central sulcus. And then running down the middle, uh, it's on this diagram too, you see that sulcus that runs down the middle there uh, longitudinally. That's called the medial sulcus. Just in case you want to know. Um, other questions? I have a brief uh, video clip that um, I like because it demonstrates the effects on language production of, say, damage to uh, uh, Broca's area. So this is a clip of a neurosurgeon. He's going to be doing a surgery on a patient's brain. I think she has a tumor. And he wants to remove the tumor, but he doesn't want to damage language production. So he has to find out, you know, there's no, you know, you don't have little labels in, on the surface of your brain saying, you know, do not cut here. Um, so he's got to figure out exactly where the edges of the language production area are so he avoids damaging those areas. So you'll see what happens when he stimulates those areas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it would be mine. I don't know. I'm a, but I'm like that, so. separate things, 
But it is very extraordinary when you actually see the brain, particularly you operate upon it. And if you think, uh, I'm actually operating upon thinking, I'm operating upon feeling. Today, Henry is going to remove a tumour from Sarah Kitchen's brain. It's a delicate operation, because the tumour is near a region of the brain that is involved in language. Damage a vital area, and Sarah might never speak again. To avoid this happening, Henry has to do something extraordinary. We'll be going now for about an hour, and the critical phase is coming where they're going to have to remove the tumour. In order to do that, Sarah has to be awake. <laughs> if you have a general anaesthetic and go into an operating theatre and have somebody operating upon your brain, it's jumping into the deep end with a blindfold on and you hope you're going to come out the other end in one piece. But if you're actually awake while it's going on, there's a much, in a sense, much greater sense of control and in a way you're part of the team. What we're going to do now is we're going to get you counting and talking when I touch your brain with an electrode <laughs> so we can work out where the speech area is. Okay? Once Sarah's awake, Henry begins to pinpoint the crucial speech areas. By using tiny pulses of electric current, he can jam temporarily the mental activity going on at a particular site in her brain. Counting for me. I want you to count up to ten and then back down again. One, two, three, four. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that she knew the number five, but couldn't actually. Say it. She could. She could think the number five, but couldn't think of it as a number, so to speak. I mean, it's different. It's not. It's not paralysing the vocal cords. Well, it's actually paralysing the mental processes that turn a, a concept, a thought, whatever you want to call it, into a word. Carry on. One, two, three, four, He's saying, sorry to play games with you. Yeah, so, um, so that gives you a kind of a sense of, uh, you know, how important that area is for being able to talk, right? Um, oh, what's that? Don't try this at home. Uh, much like the lobotomy, do not try this at home, yes. Um, no, it has more to do with, that's a good question. I don't know about writing. Yeah, I wonder about that. Yeah, I think it would have, I think you would have trouble with writing out language, yeah. I would think so. But I, I haven't looked at, the, looked at that. That's, yeah, that's a good question. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, split brain. Right. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. I'll go. I'll talk a little bit about uh, when we talk here about the corpus callosum. Uh, uh, so, um, as I said, this only the only connection here now between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere is through the corpus callosum. And in severe cases of epilepsy that is drug resistant and can't be treated by drugs, um, they will sometimes sever the corpus callosum. And what that essentially does is it keeps the epileptic seizure on one side of your hemisphere, uh, one side of your brain from affecting the other side. So, um, so it allows uh, people to live and function more effectively. And in fact, I think the severing the the corpus callosum for those people actually um, stops the epileptic seizures because it has something to do with it going back and forth. So um, what uh, some of the ideas that we've come up with over the last hundred years or so in looking at brain damage and how it affects people's abilities are that the left and right hemisphere have particular specializations. That doesn't mean, and caution, this does not mean that the left hemisphere can't do right hemisphere stuff. Yes, it can. And in fact, again, in severe cases of epilepsy, um, people will sometimes have, uh, this has been done in children, I don't know about adults, uh, a hemispherectomy. Um, ectomy meaning you remove it. So essentially, the re entire removal of one entire hemisphere of the brain. Um, and in those cases, people uh, recover the abilities that the other hemisphere would have uh, would have had. So uh, both of them do both of these things. But what we see is for people, typically language processing is mostly on the left hemisphere. So remember Broca's and Wernicke's area. Um, uh, interp literal interpretation. Um, so, you know, actually seeing things and interpreting, interpreting them. Similes, this is like that. That's a very literal interpretation. As opposed to subtle interpretation, which happens on the right hemisphere. So um, metaphors are subtle interpretations. Abstract concepts require subtle interpretations rather than very literal things. Analysis over on the left side versus synthesis on the right side. Um, looking at something, looking at a concept, being able to take it out apart into its component parts versus synthesis, being able to look at something and look at pieces and put them together and figure out what they'll make when you put them together, right? Um, now, so you notice that the left hemisphere is uh, specialized for language. So if we cut the corpus callosum and we ask someone to write the word cat with their right hand, guess what? The left hemisphere can't tell the right side of the body what to do. So <laughs> you get nothing, right? You might get some scribbling. Um, so yeah, so this, um, when we have to do this split brain surgery, we've seen some interesting uh, results. And um, But most people who have that split split brain surgery um, recover quite well within a couple of months. And that's due to something we'll call plasticity, which I'll talk about in a second here. Yeah. I don't really understand if, like, I knew about the 
Um, I'm not. I'm not entirely certain about like your tongue, for example, um, whether one side of your tongue would be impaired. Uh, we see, for example, that uh, people with a stroke, if they have a stroke in the motor area that controls the facial muscles, you'll see the mus. You know, you know, you'll see people with sort of a sag on their face, um, and I think that probably affects the muscles of the tongue on the right side, but I'm not certain about that. Yeah, right. It would it would come out as sort of slurred speech, the most likely. Yep, 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 yep. Now remember, as I said, both sides do both functions. It's just that one's more specialized uh, than the other. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's that coordination of the eyes that's kind of, that happens. That's again part of that corpus callosum stuff. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, did you have a question? Okay. So um, I gave you that Wagner preference inventory, and that'll give you an idea of sort of which side of the brain you prefer to use under uh, most situations. But whether you're sort of quote-unquote right-brained or left-brained really um, doesn't make any difference. Um, it's just a matter of what, where you tend to, your general tendency tends to go. We'll talk a little bit about brain damage. Um, couple of conditions in the brain that can cause damage. Hydrocephalus, which is essentially um, when you have uh, too much cerebral spinal fluid that builds up and it starts to become inflamed and it puts pressure on the brain. It'll actually start to damage brain cells. Meningitis, um, when you ever see the suffix itis, that implies an, inf that an inflammation or and this is uh, an inflammation of the um, meninges, which is um, some tissue and fibers that run between your skull and your brain. And when those become inflamed, uh, that can cause problems with um, brain damage. Aneurysms. Every now and again, you'll hear about somebody who, you know, is walking down the street one day and keeled over and died just for no apparent reason at all, except that they suddenly had a hemorrhage in their brain and the blood actually will damage the tissues and so uh, it'll cause brain damage. Uh, stroke is a condition where there's a clot in one of the arteries uh, that leads to your brain or inside your brain and that'll cut off the circulation to a particular set of uh, brain cells and kill off those brain cells. So again, if that happens, for example, in one of your motor cortex areas, then you'll have problems with motor movement on the opposite uh, side of the body. Um, and then there's just trauma. You know what? Um, it's really difficult to avoid this stuff. We drive cars around. You know, we drive around 2,000 pounds of metal, or now most of them are bigger than that, uh, at high speeds, and they crash into things. And guess what? We hit our heads and uh, we get hurt. Sports, another big source of um, a traumatic brain injury, and just basically falling down, especially as you get older um, and your balance is not quite as good anymore. So, um, you know, any one of us could be subject to a traumatic uh, brain injury, and these oftentimes will result in um, permanent uh, disabilities. So, 
there is the famous story of Phineas Gage. Um, this was one of the first cases where we actually saw real clear evidence of what the prefrontal lobe does and what happens if it gets damaged. Um, he was a railroad worker in the late 1800s and he was working on, they had to blast some rock uh, to make a way for the tracks. And so they, what they would do is they would drill a core out of the rock and they'd put explosive powder down in there. And in order to get the powder to go off evenly, you have to tamp it down and have it be under compression. So uh, his job was to tamp the, exp the explosive powder. He's tamping down with this steel tamping rod, a 10-foot tamping rod. And he tamps down and the explosive goes off and the tamping rod basically comes up through his chin or his cheek and then exits his head right about here. And so essentially takes out most of his prefrontal cortex. And what the doctors saw and his friends saw was an incredibly uh, profound change in his behavior where he once was relatively mild-mannered. He became very abrasive, very brusque. His language became, uh, you know, cursed a lot. Um, and uh, so that's, that was sort of the first indication, gee, you know what? This part of the brain uh, seems to be associated with um, personality and impulse control and that sort of thing. Uh, he survived, which is amazing. Um, and he actually lived to a ripe old age. Um, but he was never the same afterwards. But um, our brain has an amazing ability to um, heal itself after these kinds of traumas. And we call that plasticity. Uh, so, for example, um, there's two kinds of adaptations. Um, first of all, neurogenesis, which is basically growing new parts of nerve cells or growing new nerve cells. Your brain does a relatively small amount of neurogenesis, uh, although it does do some. And then the other form is called, um, is basically just reorganization of the uh, processes. So here's what will happen. You get a stroke in this part of your brain and you've got, you know, you've got neurons that are all going in different directions here. And if the neurons need to make a pathway through the area that's damaged, what will wind up happening is they'll start branching out and they'll start branching to other nerve fibers and other neurons and find their way around that area of damage. So you can recover at least some of the function uh, that would have been lost if you couldn't make those connections through the damaged area. But uh, you'd still lose a lot of the function of that particular damaged area. Adults tend not to be able to uh, recover quite as well as children can. But, uh, but we, we do have um, amazing capacities for, uh, for being able to recover from that stuff. I'm out of time. You're ready for the exam. And uh, I'll see you on Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah, you'll, when you're done with the exam, you're free to fly the coop. Yeah, no kidding. I'd be pretty mad, too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.